On this week's Bet the Process podcast, we have Ted Knudsen, former odds maker at Pinnacle, now CEO of StatsBomb, talking about the Pinnacle model, what it means, what it means to book sharps, and what it means to reverse engineer a model. And then Rufus and I have some talks about his time at the New Jersey conference, the Bet uh, Sports, Bet on Sports America conference. Anyways. Bet on Sports America. Here we go. Anyways, and with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a out with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. We welcome in Ted Knudsen, friend of the podcast, friend of Rufus and I's. One day we're all going to be working together, hopefully doing something really fun fun and cool. But in the interim, Ted is the founder of StatsBomb, which um, I often reference as one of the most innovative companies actually looking at data analytics from sort of the bottom, the place where it all begins, the data, collecting really uh, advanced and better data about soccer than what's available. And in and, and the other parts of the world, I, I've heard that people really care about soccer. So that's good. That's really good that you're doing that. So welcome in, Ted. Thank you. You only care about soccer during the World Cup, apparently. When people put it on during like the Champions League and that kind of stuff, I care about it too. But like, I mean, I, if, if there's like a big game of any sport on, I, I care about it. So soccer certainly qualifies. So you're an action junkie is what you're telling me? Actually, that's a question that I had, and, and this is like not – I'd love to hear you guys' perspective because I don't know if you guys have finished watching the show on Showtime called Action. Ted, are you familiar with it? It's this four-part docu-series that was on Showtime about sports betting. We, we do not have access to that here in the UK. I imagine I could get a hold of it somehow <laughs> by the, the magic of the internet. But no, go ahead. Tell me. So basically one of the premises behind it and one of the themes that I started thinking about as I was watching it was, can you be a real advantage player, a professional gambler, a successful professional gambler, and also be a degenerate? Because I think two of the people that are in the, the, the sort of main characters in that show have both been to Gamblers Anonymous. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily call either of them uh, real advantage players or whatnot, but but that that notion of the line between because like the best gamblers that I knew that played blackjack were not you know action junkies were not degenerates at all. I don't consider Rufus to be an action junkie or a degenerate at all. Um, so I'd be curious to see what you guys think of of that sort of interesting dichotomy. So I have some interesting stories about this if you want. Sure. <laughs> I'm allowed to, to tell these now that I've been out for like five years. Um, so one of the, for a long time, I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Wonder, but for a long time, he was one of the biggest U.S. sports bettors in the world, I probably over a decade. And it was interesting to watch him bet and kind of try and parse his bets and, and what they meant. And sometimes they were simply nonsensical. Like, it, it was clear that, like, he was chasing his own steam. He just wanted to get down. You know, it, it, it didn't fit any of the patterns that you would say of the advantage player but on the flip side like he was really good for a very long time and and you know exploited consistent 
you know, value inside of the market across a number of different sports. And, and the question then becomes like, you know, everybody probably has leaks, right? They, they, they probably have like holes in their game or things that they read and they're, they're like, look, I made a ton of money. I'm just going to throw a bet out there. And, and that's not, that's not how it works though, right? Like that's not how, how, you know, if you're doing it from a systemic perspective and you want to maximize your, your advantage, like that's not how it goes, but that's human nature. But do you think, Ted, that, I mean, every, you know, I heard um, Roxy Rossborough quoted on a, on the business of betting podcast saying that, that it's hard to win in every sport and, and most successful bettors are not good in every sport. And at Pinnacle, I know you, you guys, well, I shouldn't say you guys, but because you used to be at Pinnacle, um, did you find that? And did you move a different amount on, um, on action from successful bettors in different sports? And were, were there some guys that, you know, if they bet soccer, you'd move a ton, but if they bet NBA, you wouldn't move at all. Sure. And even inside of, uh, you know, a sport on certain leagues, like soccer has a ton of different leagues. Like you're like, look, this guy's amazing in these five leagues, but I'm suspicious about some of the other ones. And, and you know, you've, you've got a baseball model that doesn't win around the all-star break. I, I don't know why we, we have models like inside of syndicates that cannot beat certain leagues, despite the fact that like the same sort of information is used over the course of years. And like, that's a weird one too. Why, why is it systemically failing? So yeah, I mean, that, that's just a truism across all of the industry. Well, what's interesting though, also does not win in 2019, apparently. <laughs> what's, what's interesting though, is that um, I think in blackjack, again, like, because there's this sort of like super focus or hyper focus on how small your edge is and the analytics around it. Like most of the people that I play blackjack with, especially in the early days, they did not have leaks. They weren't like, I was a guy that, you know, if I went to go kill time, I would play craps or something like that. And the higher ups that I played, you know, when I began in blackjack really didn't like that. They were like, why, why is he going to do that? Like that's, he's just, you know, I wasn't playing with the team's money. I was just playing small with my own money, but they thought that that was a reflection of me being a, a not a real advantage player. So it's interesting that in, in sports betting and maybe because of like the, the certainty versus the uncertainty, like in blackjack, there's such a certainty around, um, you know, your advantage and whatnot, whereas sports betting will never get to that level of certainty. Yeah, I, I was going to make the same point there, Jeff, that it is a closed system. But um, I, I think the other thing, though, is if you're a better, let's say you've had success betting baseball. Like I started off betting baseball. I had models that were back tested. Um, I, I then started looking at NFL props. I didn't, I couldn't back test NFL props. I don't have historical NFL prop lines. I just thought that I, I had, I, I liked the logic of my model and it turned out that it won a lot. And then I looked at golf and I couldn't back test against golf matchups, but again, I liked the logic of it and it won. But there's certain things you, you can't necessarily back test against, you could, like against previous lines. And even if you can, I mean, markets do change. So I, I do think it's, I think sometimes if you're successful in one thing, you kind of assume that that you're going to be able to be successful in these other things, but you know you may not have been able to put in. Well, things are different, but also you may not be able to put in the same level of of effort um, that you were initially to become successful in the first place. Well, what's interesting is like the lack of data there actually causes you to avoid some consistent pitfalls that you would have as a person who models and then gambles on sports. Because if you can't backtest, that means you can't necessarily overfit 
you're really working from a theoretical perspective off of most of that information. And then you're kind of like out there in the wild floating on the boat. And, and you know, sometimes the, the boat tips over and you're like, well, this is shit. Hopefully I haven't lost too much money. <laughs> so describe to us, Ted, I think that's a good point. Describe to us what you mean there by overfitting and like the pitfall that a lot of like the modelers fall into. From from our perspective, like you know, we we had a number of so like the book is different, but and, and so like I'll break it into two sections. The from the sportsbooks perspective, you're looking at and trying to find gamblers that you know are systemic, right? Like they're not just making picks that have some advantage. They hopefully have some model. They're probably quantitative. Uh, often they've got signatures that they bet consistently at the same time, uh, sometimes on the same teams, whatever. From uh, a betting perspective, like if you if you have a model and especially like black box type models that go out there and are like, all right, so this just beats the lines, and we've got some other theory on top of it, and we've got some sports data inside of it, but mostly we're based off of the lines. Like the the probability that that gets overfit is actually fairly strong, and that's true even from the the sports data perspective too, which is why we always had humans on top of this stuff for like years to be able to look at it until you kind of are able to say, all right, the model now has pretty much all the information that we want to have it. The humans are comfortable with it too. And, and now we think that it's robust. So like, I, I think that the overfitting bit, you know, especially for quantitative people that want to get involved in betting, need to be really, really careful about it. I agree. What do you mean that when you say a model just based on the lines? So there's, uh, there are lines that are independent and there are lines that are dependent variables, right? Right. Does that make sense? Like, so the, for most sports, the money line is a derivative of the spread and the total. And the spread and the total are the sharper lines because those are the ones that take all of the action. So, like, they're the ones that actually have validity. The money line can get out of whack for various reasons. Um, so, some people look at models and say, okay, well, from this perspective, I can take these scores and these lines, and this is the model that just beats the lines. Like, that's something that I would be very uncomfortable with without a lot of additional sport information. But it's certainly the way that a lot of modelers went about this in the early days, and the lines were a lot softer. So as they got tighter, their, basically their returns went to shit. But are you saying to beat the derivative markets? So for example, using, as you said, using like the spread and the total to generate a, a money line and comparing that to the book's money line? Well, this would be the independent variables. So you say, okay, in all of these situations, we've got home field factored in, we've got these types of information, and then you know this is the market-derived price of this team. Does it make sense for my model? Uh, you know, I plugged it in through some sort of ML uh, betting. Now, this is like older school type stuff. I don't think you can get away with this at all. I think actually you go broke very quickly with it now. But I know for a fact that some people had winning models that disappeared over the course of like 10 years because that edge was wrong because their theory wasn't, wasn't good enough. Okay, that, that makes sense. So fundamentally, in this case, like one of the issues is that you're overfitting to the data set that you have. And like real, realistically, that data set is not relevant to what's happening in the future. Exactly. And you have to be worried about the other thing that happens, too, which is we have a whole lot of data. And somehow the model thinks that some things are more important than other ones, which isn't necessarily true, but it found a pattern inside of the data. And that's where the humans and the gamers usually come and take it apart. So, so Ted, can you pick this, this logic apart for me? I've had somebody or people say, well, you know, I have this data. I had a, you know, a, a training set and a test set. And this particular combination of variables generated the best 
predictions in the test set and it's out of sample. It can't be overfit because we tried all these different, you know, because it's a training set and a test set. Um, what would you say to that? I would basically, I would ask what your theory is that underpins it, right? Like if you're, does it, does it reflect what matters inside of the sport itself? I mean, if, if it's, it's a, the, well, I, let's say it's something a theoretical, let's say somebody has a bunch of variables that they think are significant to predicting a particular sport. Um, you know, they can be, there could be theory in that, but then putting these variables together into a prediction at the end, they're, they're like, well, you know, this is what is the most important according to whatever machine learning or, or variable selection criteria, you know, I mean, some sort of a well, isn't, isn't, it, isn't, isn't the answer to that Rufus that like the training set may be non-stationary, meaning like the training set, sorry, the, 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 whatever you're using to val whatever set you're using to validate it. Well, um, the, the I, I didn't mean to do it chronologically necessarily. I mean, you can you can do any kind, any any number no, of like kinds of cross validation. If, right, but what I'm saying is, you, you still have to assume that whatever set that you're, whatever data set they're using to test it has some level of of stationarity with what is happening in the future, which isn't necessarily the case, right? Regardless of whether you're testing, whether you have a a, a sample that you've pulled out to test with. I mean, if you're testing like every third game now, I would I would say that. I mean, I, I guess I see what you're saying though. I mean, if the game is changing, um, it it doesn't make sense that it's going to be better going forward. But I guess what I was getting at is if you're testing a bunch of different things and then testing them on this or on the training set and testing them on the test set, you're going to the one that ends up the best, like out of sample, isn't necessarily the best one. There's still randomness in that. And so I, and that's why, I mean, back to what Ted was saying, I mean, I, I think you need to have some, you have to have a model that's constructed logically and there does need to be a, some sort of theory in there. It needs to be underpinned to the sport and, and like what matters inside of the sport. And often cases, the rule changes inside of the sport. Like I would, I would argue that, you know, American football modeling has drifted a lot over the last 10 years. And as we've seen baseball modeling, especially on totals, <laughs> well, I mean, there are things going on that, that are certainly not in the data from two, three years ago that are certainly present now. And, and that's a, a significant change in, in the sport itself. That's a good and point. And I think that's why, and I think that's one, one reason my baseball model is having trouble is because it, it was not built for, I mean, I can try to adapt it to the way the sport is now, but, but I, I kind of honestly need to go through and overhaul it. Um, I mean, because your bullpens are much more important than they used to be. Starting pitchers are a lot, are a lot less important. And um, just teams are being a lot more optimal with their you know, use of analytics as well in terms of in-game stuff. I mean, baseball is great to watch if you just like strikeouts, walks, and home runs. Yeah. <laughs> so this is it, – it, it's, it's an interesting question, right, that we're talking about here. Let's move a little bit into sort of this this argument that Rufus and I have gotten into ad nauseum um, around the the different models for sports betting. So, Ted, for most of you guys that haven't listened before, um, you he he basically built out a lot of Penny's Pinnacle's early trading sort of systems, specifically the in-game stuff they did for the NBA. Um, and so he has a unique perspective on the business model that Penny had. So can you first kind of describe a little bit the approach that you guys took 
um, to sort of uh, booking bets and, and adjusting lines and, and you know, profiling betters, et cetera? Sure. So I, I was myself and, and a guy named Zvi, um, and we had been independent partners before UGA hit the, the, rule, or the laws changed. And then Penny like cut off and everybody else really cut off most of their U.S. business or all of the U.S. business. Uh, so then we went in there and we built products. And this included live sports. Like I instituted you know, live soccer, live major league baseball, fought for a year with a couple senior partners on, on putting every NBA game up, things like that. Um, and, and the model itself for Pinnacle, people are always like, oh, well, the book wants to balance action. That's really dumb for a lot of reasons. One, it gets very expensive to try and balance your action, especially if the lines move on you. And you know, if you've got the worst of it and you've got fairly big limits and fairly low margins, then that's very problematic for you. So the Pinnacle model was much more about find, find the market line um, that you can write action and hopefully be able to create equity uh, with the VIG, but also try and figure out on as many matches as possible which side is correct on that line. And that's a, a pretty interesting way to look at the world, but it's very financial. Like this is how you, you look in the world of finance. Yeah, it's it's a correct wager. This has this wager has like five percent equity on a regular basis. Like, you know, if you've got a large bankroll, you're pretty happy with five percent equity. So that's kind of how we worked it there. And then, you know, that's the the betting. Like, they will take the action and they will sculpt their action based off of the sharp customers, also the dumb customers. Um, <clears throat> and you profile the customers to figure out which side they're on. Then you we started to layer in mathematical models to add more products for starters. So like, you know, what do we think people might want to bet? Can we find mathematical ways to offer that out? Can we find a way so that the computer can run it off of the independent uh, lines? And then can we also use the mathematical models to potentially find spots where we think there is a market edge, either in the fact that the market's wrong about what the derivative prices are, or that the market is wrong about the independent prices, especially when our customers back it up. So what, what were your typical sort of margins or, or what challenges did you face in terms of um, like margins and whatnot? So uh, soccer, we, we used to deal a five cent line when we, we instituted it, which is insane. You'd be like uh, minus 102, minus 103. And that was what Asia was dealing at. at and the arbitrage volumes were absurd. And Asia was the big dog. And when we first put up the the, the lines, um, you know, we had to offer it to, to attract customers and to attract you know, Asian packages and stuff like that. But it was terrifying. And in fact, like you know, the the owners and the senior traders won in American sports for so long. They were they're quite arrogant about it. They're like, well, you know, you guys can figure this out. And we'll we'll get good action really quickly, and you'll know which side's the right side. And we just <laughs> we got killed for about four months. But we had good gamers behind you know, behind the lines, and we eventually figured out how to not lose. And then that led into starting to get and the, the mathematical models also led us to find value arbitrage spots where we could book some action and, and some volume that then had additional equity packets into it. On NBA, it'd be minus 105, minus 105. So basically half of the Vegas lines or maybe minus 104, minus 104, depending on, on how frisky uh, that season was. And then finally, the live stuff was, was really tricky because you know, we'd offer NBA live and Major League Baseball live during commercial breaks for anywhere from a thousand to, to ten thousand a shot and you could rebet it and those lines were minus 108 minus way so we are doing live like basically the the only people that started with live then other books you know threw up stuff more regularly and we're doing it at still less than vegas margins and we were 
we were doing pretty well overall. Like we had some tricky periods when you first institute stuff, but eventually you win, especially if you get the volume. And then, you know, once you understand the game, you hopefully win for the long term. So you guys were going mostly after, I mean, most of your betters, I guess, were not your the typical clientele for like a Bet365 or, or a William Hill. Well, no, I mean, Bet365 kicks out anybody that would bet at Pinnacle. Well, not anybody, but like probably more than half the people would bet at Pinnacle for various reasons immediately. Um, you know, they don't like the smell of your action. You chase steam, you do all sorts of things. Like these are people that you know, exist in that, that different world where you know, you've got low margins and you'll take winners and all actions welcome, but you've also got a lot sharper lines too. So did Pinnacle actively cater to recreational betters? Like what percentage of the customers really were these sort of recreational betters versus versus sharper betters? Because I, I know it, it obviously is a lower lower margin you're going for than, than the William Hills of the world. Well, we love recreational betters because they're margin, right? Like if you've got sharp lines, the recreational betters are just throwing in additional protection and if if they're soft, then you know you get a little. It's easier to sculpt your action and, and get the positions that you want to whatever. But that doesn't mean that like they're necessarily losing. Like these can be winning people. There are plenty of sharp people out there that can win 52% of the time in their given sport, right? Uh, or or even 51 and a half percent of the time, and suddenly they're winning better. So it's a it's a type of thing where we love to have those customers, but we also didn't spend a hundred million a year on marketing in order to try and acquire them. And so, you know, the, the hold was much, much lower than you would see almost anywhere else. But on the flip side, like if you're a customer, you want to pay the lowest fee. Like there's no bonus system that's going to give you back enough money to, to make up for the fact that you're paying half the big on every single bet. It's like going to Walmart versus going somewhere that's extremely expensive and you're buying the same milk, but one of them's charging you, you know, $5 for a gallon of milk and the other is charging you two. So, so Ted, I guess the big question now, I mean, given the fact that we have legalization in the United States and you have a lot of um, European operators coming in, um, is why, why did Pinnacle employ that model? Or I guess put a different way, why aren't there more Pinnacles out there? Why are more books employing the William Hill model, the Bet365 model, the model of only taking recreational action? Uh, it's much easier to make money that way. You don't have to be as smart. And to be honest with you, those models are a lot older than the Pinnacle model. And so that was the one that they knew how to, how to make work. And that was also one that often reflected the, the tax jurisdictions that existed as well. So if you have to pay, you know, say, 5% of every bet to the government because of taxes, like you need to have margins that are more than that. You're talking 5% so, of handle? Yeah, I mean, some some of the the tax rates off of the the early stages in Europe were extreme, and 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 they were based off of handle though, rather than gross gaming revenue. Well, it's it's not based off of your financial models that says that we have a whole bunch of costs baked into this stuff. So, Ted, when you um, when you think about the current landscape in the U.S., one of the advantages it sounds like you guys had as an offshore and whatnot was that that you didn't spend a lot of money in marketing and you were able to get customers. Do you think it's possible to do the penny model in the U.S. when there's going to be have to be, there's so much competition, especially now, um, and you might have to pay for marketing? Or do you do you think that because price is is such an advantage that you could drive customers, even recreational customers, just by having better price? The U.S. market is going to be stupidly large. 
stupidly bad. The US is very rich. Everybody speaks the same language. Everybody watches the same sports for the most part. Uh, Esports is also uh, a factor inside of that. We're seeing that grow and grow and grow. So if there is a tax jurisdiction that makes sense for this type of model to exist in as many places as possible because it has to have volume in order to work, I think that's all right. But, and I, I think there will be people that are willing to make very large wagers to, to take on that type of, um, that type of book to, to start that type of business. If it doesn't exist, if everywhere has different laws and you can't get to volume, then it may not ever be able to exist, which is a shame because it sucks to be a customer having to pay one tenner above and to get kicked out if you win. So Ted, how much, let's say I was trying to start a, a book with like that pinnacle model. I mean, you're, you're taking on, you're taking a lot of action, you're catering to sharps. I think one obstacle there is, is you have to have some deep coffers, right? Like how much money would you say it would take to actually start something like that in terms of being able to take these bets and take these positions on? I would suggest that your expenses are somewhere between say 20 and 50 million a year to run that book with various various reasons. Like you've got people that you have to pay margins to and stuff like that for, for action and to bring you books and you've got a lot of IT costs, but it probably only takes about a hundred billion in bankroll to make that work as long as you have fairly sharp traders and you've got the system underneath it. So like you, that's where the expenses come in. You need to have intelligent people that are operating this, you need to have good IT. Once it exists, then you know, I, I have a strong belief that you can win pretty consistently, pretty quickly. I, I love that you said only 100 million. Well, 100 I, I, million I, I, really isn't that much, it isn't that much money. It's in like the, the rest of the world. It might be big to like a single company right now. But even even still, there's if if you had an advantage, there's tons of like funds that would be willing to put in a hundred million dollars, not for operational capital, but for capital like this. This is more or less investment capital or whatever you would call it, right? This is this is the idea of like if you built a new um, you know hedge fund or something like that, raising raising a hundred million dollars for a hedge fund is is nothing. So I, I don't think I don't think that is the issue with this, Rufus. At least in my mind, the issue is essentially like the regulatory licensing that you would need to get to, to be able to get access to enough markets initially to make this happen. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, that makes sense. I thought that, I thought the number would be, I mean, to me, the 20 to 50 million a year in, in operational cost seems, seems quite high, but I mean, obviously I'm not, I've never run a book and, uh, and Ted has, and, and has a lot better of an idea than I do. So it's, I feel like I'm learning something, but well, the like the Asian market is certainly going to want to potentially be involved in this. Um, but even if that's not like the way that they operate is like you're paying them, um, you know, a small percentage of volume fee to, to bring you action, and and it's, it's it's not unlike Vegas. Like Vegas has sort of whale um, people that that bring you the action there. There's always costs involved in that. So it depends on how you break up the cost. But I'm saying this as an experienced person who kind of understands what the costs have been historically in some of these places. That's what it looks like. How you how you break those down into actual budget may be a little more challenging. So let's let's um Ted, let's let you go right now because the coffee shop seems like it's a little bit hectic. But um I think wait, this wait, is a Jeff, good before we do that, can I ask can I ask Ted? I, I have two more questions for him. Sure. We can also do a part, we can do a part two with him too, just because I think it might be better when he's 
somewhere a little bit quieter. But if you if you want to ask them now, go for it. No, I feel like these kind of um, these build off of what we were just talking about. But but um, what do you think about an ex the exchange model in the U.S. and do you think it can work? And why have why ha why have exchanges not worked in the past? So my first question is who's booking the exchange, right? Who's booking? Where, where, yeah, sure. Where's the market making come from? Um, you have, well, an exchange is outsourcing the market making to different companies. Um, I would think financial companies and, you know, other entities that, you know, yeah. So my, what I'm saying is, is basically like an exchange is just a, a bookie with middleman. Yeah. And, and that lends itself to one, not necessarily being that cheap from a customer perspective, but two, you know, some, someone's basically getting paid quite a bit of money in order to make this market at all. So I, I don't see it as that much different than, you know, the bookies, the, the only real difference. I mean, Patty Power and Betfair are now the same company, right? One of which is a, is a traditional bookie and the other one is an exchange, but yeah, it doesn't mean that much in terms of the customer element. Right. But I guess if nobody, if no books are actually taking, you know, a pinnacle model or, or model where they're willing to take big action and take sharp action, um, it does seem like, I mean, it, it's, I guess what I'm saying is it seems like, yes, you don't need that middleman, but if you're not going to do this and not going to take that action, then there does seem to be a place for it. I don't necessarily disagree. I, I've lived through the era of premium uh, winner's fees, though, and so I'm not comfortable that that's going to be that much better off for everybody wanting to bet, especially people who want to bet large. If someone's taking a huge fee out of your winnings, you're going to be upset about that, too. Yeah, I mean, I think if to do it right, you have to sort of make it look like your traditional sports book, right? I mean, if it says the price is minus 108, that minus 108 needs to include the fees that you're going to be paying on your winnings, which I think is pretty easily done. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't think that, I mean, I think the exchange is a better model, but again, you still have to worry about the taxation and, and how clearly um, you know, the government is, is viewing this as a different thing than a bookie or not. I think the other challenge that we're finding is that the leagues want their own cut. And in Europe, the leagues, the leagues will often get a data fee, but it's not mandatory. They control the connections into their stadia. And that's interesting, but you know, we're not paying it directly to them and you're not forced to, to be able to have a, a league connection in order to offer the product at all. Well, that was an awesome interview with Ted. Um, you know, Rufus, what were, what were some of your thoughts coming out of that? I, I could tell that the wheels were turning uh, for you and you were, you were almost doing like market research as you talked to him. Oh, yeah. I mean, after having been at that uh, Vetting on Sports in America conference last week in New Jersey, I, I feel like, you know, my head is just I have a lot going on there. Um, a lot of thoughts about the industry and where it's going. And, and Ted is more qualified than anybody I know to kind of to speak to that, too. So um, I was definitely surprised at, at the amount of money he thought it would take just given uh, or, or to, to operate a book, at least to do it using the pinnacle model um, in the United States, just given how how little I feel like books are actually taking in the United States or, I mean, but then again, I don't even know, like Jeff, do you have any idea what a typical position is for a sports book? Let's say in Las Vegas, like an MGM or something um, on a, on a typical NFL game. 
like what the decision is for them? Uh, I don't know. There were some numbers thrown around on action. I don't think that'd be hard to find out. Like we could, we could certainly get like John Murray on, um, like sometime to just talk about this. Maybe he'd be a good person to get on next week. He's, he's yeah. a pretty re- reasonable guy. And we can talk through all of this. And he's from, he's from my hometown of Alexandria, Virginia. Too. He's, he's a good guy. Um, what did you think about action? Did you watch the last episodes? Uh, I, I didn't, I only saw the first two, but I heard that Vegas Dave was portrayed in much more of a negative light. Oh my God. They clown him at the end, which is good. No, I, I, I think that I think after watching the last two episodes, I think it was a really good show because I think it portrayed the darker side of sports betting, which is such an important thing to to get out there. And it showed Vegas Dave basically like losing, you know, his last his last uh, Super Bowl bet. Uh, what well, so going the conference championship bet his whale play was a seven point teaser with uh, the Rams, I think they were teased up to like plus whatever, 13 or whatever they were. And then uh, Kansas City, uh, which he teased to plus four. So that obviously lost, right? Because Kansas City lost in overtime and and they sort of, and then then in the Super Bowl, his, his big play was the Rams, which we all know the Rams were like the sharp side in the Super Bowl. Every every sharp had the Rams plus the two and a half or plus three or was, was just generally waiting for that. Um, yeah, Jeff, what have we said about labeling things the sharp side? I think that that's a fair... You don't think it's fair to say that that was the sharp side? I, I mean, mean, I think it was, but but we've we've talked before about how how just label, saying this is the sharp side and this is the public side is is a little bit over. Yeah, that, that's fair. And I'm not saying it in, in any way to say like it was the value play. I'm just saying like most, most of the people that I knew that were quote unquote sharps believe that that was the sharp side. So it was just interesting because like I don't think he's normally on the sharp, what's quote unquote the sharp side. Well, Jeff, so anyways, he, my point he is, is my across point is zero. That... He teases bets across zero, which if I mean to the like, so it, I think everybody listening to our show knows what a teaser is, probably. But um, you're, but zero, the push probability on zero in an overtime or in a playoff game is zero percent. So you're, it's yeah. So it's not Never. a very valuable thing to tease across, is what Rufus is. I mean, anyways, like we don't, saying, we don't need like to talk saying, about how bad Vegas Davis. My point Jeff, is, my Jeff, point wait, wait. it's like saying I'm going to buy a half a point off of the pick. Okay. Oh wait, by the way, Dave, Vegas Dave teased or he recommended for in the Super Bowl for his customers to buy his his whale play was to have them buy uh, up to three and a half. Because buying up to three and a half makes them have a better chance to win. And he wants his customers well, to win. That's, that's true. It does make them have a better chance to win, Jeff. Right. But, but, exactly. but back to action. I mean, I think that, yes, I mean, it's, I'm glad that, that exposed Vegas Dave. Although from what I've heard, um, you know, it's, you know, I guess part of it is any publicity is good publicity. And so um, a lot of people didn't necessarily watch the series, but they heard about this guy, Vegas Dave, who, you know, has a villa in Cabo and drives these expensive cars and made all this money betting and got kicked out of books, you know, so someone has to watch the entire thing, I guess, to sort of, to get the, come to the conclusion that, that the guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But I mean, it's easy for people like us who know the industry well, but what if, but you're going to have a lot of newbies out there 
that don't understand the industry well, that don't understand people can win at a 75% rate and maybe think he just got lucky and or got unlucky in those games. And and also, I mean, I think it it was a show about betting without any people that bet for a living without selling picks. You know, there were no Well, I mean, do you do you consider what do you what's your take on Krakenberger? Because he's the pro better. He he ends up kind of looking like the only real sharp. Um, he he wins on, you know, he's the one that ends up looking like a professional better. Are you are you saying you don't think he is? I mean, no, Bill's bet for a living for a while. Um, I mean, I don't think he he's not making his own numbers on games or anything like that. But he's um, but you know, he's a very well connected person, and um, but he decided he's selling picks now, and that's, I mean, I. I I don't know whether his picks are winning picks or not. I haven't tracked them or anything like that. But I mean, I think that it makes everybody else look really good by association, regardless of whether what they're doing is providing value. I'm confused. So, so you're saying that like Bill looks better. What what, what are you saying? Everybody looks better next to Vegas Dave. That's what I'm saying. Oh, got it. And I'm sure I'm sure Bill's going to get a ton of subscribers to his 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 pick selling service as a result of that, as a result of show, the Showtime Action series. Would you agree yeah, with that? I would. I would. I mean, I would agree. He look, he ends up looking very smart, very sharp. Um, you know, and, and again, like I am, this whole world right now is you know I I've been sort of taking a step back, and it was really interesting to see all of you guys tweeting about that conference um, in New Jersey and and. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's fascinating what's sort of happening here because there is this tremendous land grab. And I think a lot of the, I wonder, you know, like I know you're thinking about what types of opportunities there are for you. The media one is very interesting because, you know, even like we, we take that show like that, that Doug and crew are doing on ESPN. Um, and there are a lot of people that are talking about sports betting that are just not what I would consider to be the sharpest individuals in the world. Are you yeah, not agreeing? I mean, no, no, I, I, I don't know if you, I mean, who are you talking? I don't know. I don't want to participate. I mean, I, I, I mean, like, okay, so, so Doug, who we are friends with made that point of uh swimmer getting, uh, you know, a, a bad beat because the sample size he chose, and then you guys went on it on ESPN. I mean, you went on at it on Twitter together. And my point is that like Doug is, you know, a, a, a great host, very talented personality. He's a great host. What's that? I said Doug is a great host. Yeah, he's a great host. He's got a great he's got great pipes. He's super talented, but I would not consider him a sports betting expert. I, I know he is relatively successful at times at betting, and we've talked to him about his process and his process at at when we talked to him at Sloan. We, what's that? We talked about it ad nauseum, yeah. And neither of us felt very good about it, but you know, regardless, like it's 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 the point is that he has a very big platform. These people that have big platforms aren't necessarily going to educate the masses into the right process for for sports betting. Right? Yeah, yeah, and obviously, I think one in eighty-two for I guess the the it was a bad beat. I was on, were you on the Rangers that game? I was on the Rangers. They were up three. I was, on the, I, was on, I was on the other side and I did not feel bad about being on the other side because I had a lot of CLV in that game and knowing that you were on the other side and getting that much CLV um, is interesting. 
I had CLV too. I mean, I got, well, I put it close at, I mean, I, I didn't get that much CLV. I got minus one or two and I think it closed like either minus somewhere. It was either minus 104 or minus 107. I, I think I had, way. I think I had like plus 112 or plus one on the other side. So See, that's a winning, that's a winning profile for, for bet the process in general. So yeah, yeah. no, I mean, they, they, they blew a three, nothing lead lost in overtime and, and the stack Doug basically overtime? said, or sorry, they lost in extra innings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Doug basically said it was a really bad beat. Um, well, and- the reason he said it was a bad beat was he said that no team had lost with a three-run lead so far this year going into the ninth inning. And so it was the first time. It was like one in 90-something or whatever. And the thing that was absurd about it was the day before, the A's had lost a three-run lead going into the, like the 10th inning, and I had bitched to you about it. And so it was like the exact same thing. It just didn't happen to be in the ninth inning. So and we, it, and we both happened to be in the under in that game, which pushed for me as a result. I had nine and a half, I think, because I think I'd gotten it overnight. So I, I remember complaining about it, but then looking and seeing that it was actually uh, a winner. Um, anyways, so my, my point to you, and, and this is like the whole thing, like, and, you know, I don't know if you saw, but like Spanky tweeted at me and was mad at me for talking about this whole idea of, of reverse engineering and whatnot. I think you and I are, are most interested in the conversation around sports betting being as correct and as, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, thoughtful and as, and, 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 you know, I don't think either of us is saying that we are the best sports bettors in the world, but what we're saying is, hey, let's try to raise the conversation around this stuff. And my only point, and, and like, it was not negative to Spanky himself, was that I did not believe that by you tweeting out a few different things for one golf tournament that you were going to be able to be reverse engineered for your entire golf system. Your your model is just much too complicated um, and much too thought like for someone to actually be able to get, you know, a, a series of anecdotal results for one tournament and be able to reverse engineer it. To me, that didn't well, seem like a very thoughtful comment. That's all. So, so Spanky, when he said reverse engineering, when he was pressed on this, I mean, he said, well, you know, if it's, if you're on one team, one game, it's pretty likely that you, you rate them higher than the market and you probably will be on them in the future. So I think it does hurt you. It, it does hurt me having people know what I'm on for a golf tournament for one week, because it means then, I mean, it's much more likely I'm on that same golfer again the next week. So um, I, I do see his point there. I mean, I think you're right with one golf tournament with the masters, it's kind of unique. So I see your point as well, but I, well, but I my other point too, is that like, if you were going to be a media personality, which you've decided to do, even if it's limited within this, you can't be so scared of getting reverse engineered. I mean, you are already very, very well, careful about what you share publicly. So you can't share nothing. Otherwise, like, what's the point of actually doing this podcast? Well, this podcast isn't about sharing picks. It's it's about talking about the process. It's talking about which the is, industry. Which is, it's talking which about is the in process. Some ways, of, which is in some ways more harmful to you than even sharing picks, right? It's That's true. my point. My point to you is that, like, my my point also was, hey, we're doing a podcast. You're tweeting things out. You're trying to beat me in number of tweets. I mean, sorry, a number of followers, which you've done. Congratulations. Um, in, in order to do that, you have to provide content of value. And content of value is going to be content that can potentially make other people better at betting, which would theoretically, if it's a market, make you worse at betting because like they're better. Um, do you understand what I'm saying? So it's like, of course I do. So it's, 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 
I don't, yeah, I don't like Spanky's seems like a very nice guy. Everyone that's met him likes him. I've never met him. I don't want to disparage him, but I've always been someone that will be very transparent and direct when I don't agree with someone with tweets about. And I have no problem if someone does the same to me, where if I say something that's wrong, I've gotten attacked plenty of times and I've had to back up and say like, you know what? I'm wrong. That, that happens. That's true. And I think Spanky, um, Spanky told me that he, he thought that, you know, he had heard that you had, were talking smack about him on the podcast or something. And, and Spanky, Spanky is a, I mean, I, I've met him, I don't know, probably I've met him a handful of times in my life. And, and Spanky is a really nice guy, really fun to be around. Um, and yeah, I think you would actually, you'd enjoy him, Jeff. He, he's, he's, I've never seen I, anybody as dispositionally positive as Spanky is. But, but for the record also, Rufus, there were times where you mentioned like, you questioned why he was joining Twitter at this point before you'd met him too. So it wasn't that either of us was saying anything disparaging about him, but there were moments where you were questioning his motives also. Correct. Can, I mean, why, why are we doing a podcast? People can question that as well. We, we, my, my point we, is, my we, point we is that like money every week because we pay for our own production for this. Um, and what's our end game, right? My point is that like I, him attacking me on Twitter and basically telling me I couldn't be his apprentice seemed a little bit extreme I, for that moment. Yeah, and I think he acknowledged that. Anyways, um, we can move but, on. Yeah. Um, so any other things from that conference that were interesting to you? Um, you know, it was, it was the, as I said on Twitter, it was the most alcoholic conference I've ever been to. There were, there were all these, it was basically a trade show for these European tech companies mostly. A lot of European people there. Um, you had companies that literally had a tap set up at their sort of display, and were just you know people were just you know casually drinking a uh, in Carlsberg from you know for the Danish company. I forget what it was called. Morton Anderson was there representing them. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, so it, it was it was it, it was hilarious. It was basically a lot of networking, and I saw um, you know I had interesting conversations with some operators. Um, some in New Jersey and, and some that I already knew in Nevada. And actually I got to meet Art Manteris for the first time. And, and he and I had a really nice discussion for, for um, about 15 or 20 minutes. But I, what I heard from a lot of the operators in New Jersey was that they're still trying to figure things out. It's, they don't have things in place yet to be able to sort of take the big sharp action just because um, they, they, their systems they aren't really set up to handle that yet. They're they're I don't know. They're learning as they go, and and American co consumers are different. They've they've they're they're realizing this. They're they're not the same as European consumers, and that's something they're having to learn from. And so I, I, I was I had some really really interesting discussions with people about that, and and I thought it was productive. I feel like I learned a lot and and met some interesting people, and it was good. And I would do it again. And actually, there's going to be a conference in Boston this, I guess, the 13th to 15th, I think. Um, I'm trying to decide if I want to fork over $900 for something that doesn't actually give me tangible value, um, but it's just more of networking. But I, it's in Boston, so I'll probably go. I mean, you have to go. You're there. You live there now. Well, right. I'll, I'll go to the social stuff. The question is, do I want to actually buy a ticket to the conference? It's maybe like when can, I go to the Harvard game. When Maybe I go to the Yale Harvard game, I don't actually go inside the stadium. I just go and tailgate. But that's not for a cost standpoint. Right. 
Maybe we should do a, a bet the process Kickstarter for Rufus to go to the Boston uh, sports betting <laughs> contest and see if we can see if we can raise GoFundMe. Oh yeah, GoFundMe. GoFundMe. Well, I need GoFundMe to to pay off my baseball debts, huh? I've never heard you bitch so much about. No. You must not be doing well because I've never. <laughs> well, you must have done all right yesterday because Florida won. <laughs> I mean, Florida did win. Miami, Miami won. And I had and, a and Baltimore won. Yeah, I didn't have any Baltimore yesterday. Oh. But, but I did have the Marlins, and I got them at like plus 148. I was actually wondering if you away. had – because I ended up having uh, the White Sox yesterday, and they were at minus 170 the, because it, it went down. And we never have – we never, never, never have home big favorites. Never. And the fact that we did, I was like, oh, this is great. And they end up they went up 4 nothing and ended up losing 5-4, which is great. Well, I had uh, but I was wondering. I, I was thinking that you were probably the the side that pulled pushed that line down. But now I know you didn't. So. No, I, I went two and two yesterday. It's been. I mean, I think my baseball model does need an overhaul. There's right now. There's much. You know, the game has changed, and basically, what I do every year is I just um, update coefficients, and and I, I don't. I I don't. I haven't really overhauled the model in a long time. And as Ted said, like games change, and you need to adapt. And and I've been busy with other stuff, and I'm just sort of been living on cruise control of baseball and, and you have a lot of really good data out there that's now available to anybody. Um, and it's really easily accessible. You don't need to be able to, you, know, you don't need to, I guess it's, it's very easy to get it. Um, so the advantage of having this being like, uh, of writing good programs to scrape, like hard to find data, it has gone down. And, you know, I honestly need to do more of integrating the Statcast stuff, um, into my model. Um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still getting closing line value. I still think that I'm going to, that's I, also because there, but, that's also because 95% of the time you're the one causing that closing line value. No, that's not, that is not true at all. Actually, not in the baseball market. You move the baseball market. When I bet the market will move, but then it'll move back. I mean, it, right. it's, I don't think, you know, I'm not betting right before the game at this point. Like if I'm betting, the morning of I can move the market, but then, you know, it's, I, I don't think that's going to have a huge impact on where the line ends up being. Would you agree? Yeah, no, I agree. So okay, I got a, I got a jet. Um, any other parting words before we go? Nope. That's it. All right. We'll talk to you guys maybe in a week. Maybe we'll get John Murray. Maybe we'll do another podcast. The breakdown of data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are but the engines running off a of leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies.